sit down if you want to. Right in the middle of what's going on. I'm in the middle of an interrogation. Take a seat, young Skywalker. The middle children of history, man. Middle of the day, Alfred. Please, take a seat, baby. Right now, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Stop the middle, it's a base hit! Meeting in the middle. They fought for the freedom of middle. 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 The middle of a middle. The middle of a war. Freaking ridiculous. Why don't we have a seat to talk about? No, not the middle seat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Middle Seats Podcast, the best seat in the house for all things entertainment. I'm your pilot for the evening, Andrew Ogier, and welcome to episode number three of the Middle Seats Podcast. And I'm here, and I'll introduce my co-pilots for the evening. He's the technician who you call when that little light on the dashboard starts blinking and you need some help. Mr. Nate Lungarini, can you diagnose it for me? <laughs> I can diagnose it. <laughs> no promises that I'll fix it, but I'll do my best, Drew. Uh, good to be here today. And it's good that we have you to diagnose it because back in coach, he's the disgruntled passenger who had to pay eight ninety nine to watch a movie for just a two-hour flight. Jake Hensler, what were you going to watch? Um, Probably nothing with subtitles. I don't feel like reading while I'm on a plane or you know a bus or anything like that. Probably something fun to kick back and relax while we're on a two, three, four-hour journey. That's so cultured of you. Anyway, if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. The Middle Seats Podcast is a movie podcast where we talk about news, reviews, and all everything else that has to do with movies. Our show starts with the first segment called lobby talk where we just kind of shoot the shit about different topics about movies each member of the crew every week picks a different topic this week it'll be nate's turn and he'll introduce that topic in a bit then we're going to talk about some news that's going on around in movies and then we're going to get to our feature review which is of the new tom cruise drama american made so guys um how you doing how we doing everybody (laughs) well a little flustered today on my end drew i've been Actually, dealing with quite a lot of technical issues in the studio over here. Um, hopefully, they'll all get sorted out by the end of the week, but we'll have a good show today. Flustered, but enthusiastic. Do you have IT Love over it. there that can take care of it? Uh, IT for IT is a hard thing to come by here, Drew. He is the IT. We're making Who are you kidding? <laughs> Jake, how's everything going for you? Uh, flustered for a different reason. I had to wake up early to go see a movie. I've never seen a movie before noon, so... Interesting, we're, interesting we're experience. In broad daylight, we're recording this today. Yeah, yeah. Middle seats has me doing all kinds of uh, new stuff. Seeing a movie before noon, recording during the daylight. I'm all, I'm a mess. We appreciate your dedication to the show. So we're gonna get into the rhythm of the show here, um, and we're gonna get into our first segment, lobby talk. Let's all go to the lobby. You're in the lobby. What do you look like? I will blow up the block before you can get the lobby. Alrighty, gentlemen. So for today's lobby talk, I wanted to talk about music in movies, specifically the scores of movies. Uh, Now, there is a difference between a soundtrack and a score. A score is usually the original music made for the movie. And I just kind of wanted to talk about the stuff we love, stuff we don't love, um, and most importantly, how it makes a movie better. Uh, so before we really get into our, our favorite music and movies, we're going to have just a brief little, um, uh, what's the word, recognition for John Williams, who, if we really wanted to, we could talk about him for a solid three hours. But he is 
probably hands down the best and most iconic music producer for movies. He's done Star Wars, Jaws, Superman, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, composed Harry Potter, a whole bunch of stuff. And probably one of the most iconic artists working in the industry and has made just so many beloved music for movies. Um, If you've ever been in a high school band, you've probably played at least three of his scores at some point. Easy, easy. (laughs) So how about we'll start with you, Drew. Like, what are some of your favorite musical scores? Hmm. Well, thinking broadly uh, about this topic is hard because, you know, music is such an important part to movies. Uh, It complements the visuals. It gives things rhythm. And it's kind of hard to span the whole history of film. So I figured you guys would go broad. I'm going to go with a specific topic that I like to talk about where scores really stand out to me. And this is where music fills in gaps of silence or movies with little dialogue that use music really well. And it's really something that's stuck out to me in a lot of films over the last 10 years or so. So I'm going to just name a few off the top of the head. Of course, there's a very obvious one, The Artist, which won Best Picture in 2011. Completely silent film up until... The final few moments, kind of talking about the silent film era of the 1920s, and Ludovic Borges' score for that kind of gives that movie a nice background classical feel. Gravity by Stephen uh, Stephen Price's score for the Alfonso Cuarón uh, movie. There's no sound effects or anything in this film, just dialogue and just music, and the music really heightens the tension of what is a fantastic thriller. Uh, Up, of course, that movie has a lot, ton of dialogue. Uh, but Michael Giacchino's score in the opening montage that breaks your heart over and over again in the first 10 minutes. La La Land, Justin Hurwitz, kind of the same thing. Same idea where there's some montages that go through and it kind of gives it this rhythm of like a classical 50s musical. And then recently, uh, Hans Zimmer's score for Dunkirk was one that really stood out to me. Uh, There's not a lot of character in that film. There's not a whole lot of dialogue, but the music really heightens the tension and really attaches all of these different sequences together that kind of don't have any correlation other than musical themes and orchestration. All, yeah. all great examples. Absolutely. Cool stuff. Jake, how about you? Um, well, Andrew stole one of mine. La La Land is one of my favorite movies post-2010. Um, maybe even more than that. But uh, La La Land is a phenomenal score. Uh, you know, phenomenal music all around. Um, but I, I really, you know... There's so many aspects to scores, but I like when, you know, things advance the movie or heighten it or really get your heart racing. Um, And I think a lot of superhero movies do that. But one I really like to talk about um, is Mad Max. Mad Max is a phenomenal, maybe the best action movie since, you know, 2010 as well. Um, And I think the score heightens it even more because Mad Max is something that, you know, where a lot of the action scenes are explosions and stuff. And the... Uh, the music in it just completely elevates everything to a whole nother level. So I love that. Um, I think a lot of superhero movies have it. So like uh, Spider-Man, um, you know, moments of tension. Which Spider-Mans? We, we got to go between three different franchises now. Which Spider-Man? That's a mess oh, on its own. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, Sam Raimi, Spider-Man. Okay. Right. Um, Danny Elfman's score. Yeah. Yes. Danny Elfman's score. I think uh, Danny Elfman's score not only has a great memorable theme, but there's a lot of a lot of key moments where there's tension and um, he you know, heightens the tension even more with his music. Some are upbeat. Um, uh, whatchamacallit? I'm trying to think. Like uh, after Uncle Ben dies, for example, and he's running to go catch the killer, 
there's there's a scene in there and it really stuck out to me how how upbeat the music gets and how it really you know it really shows you know Peter Parker's intensity and you know his his need for taking action after the death of his uncle and it really just heightens it and I think that's a great one um, and one I don't think you guys are going to talk about much totally different side of it is Chariots of Fire and I know Nate is going to know what I'm talking about as a fellow runner um, <laughs> but Chariots of Fire is a beautiful uh, beautiful score which really I don't even know how to put it but Chariots of Fire is about uh, you know long story short it's about runners and it's basically the quintessential running theme. I was going to say, so. you're using a lot of words to just go, dun, 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 dun. Exactly. Dun, <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Exactly. Well, that's I think one it's of like the cool the... parts about great scores is that we can hum one or dun, dun one, and you'll instantly recognize it. Like, yeah. especially with some of John Williams. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he's the king of the dun, dun. John Williams is the dun, dun king. Dun, 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 dun. It's just perfect. Um, and I think that's what's really, really cool about music scores. And um, an interesting thing that you brought up, Jake, was superhero scores having uh, a lot of memorable ones. And this is actually a pretty hot-button topic on the internet, but I'm in the camp that modern superhero movies out of the last 5-10 years have kind of failed on the musical score front where there hasn't been a whole lot of memorable music coming out of movies. Uh, the Marvel movies in particular, uh, a lot of the DC movies as of late have been relying mostly on soundtracks of pop songs as uh, opposed to... I'm going to I'm gonna contend that point right there. Um, All right, as far let's as hear it. Specifically with the DC movies, um, I think the three, none of the three of us like Batman v Superman, right? I think that's nope. kind of an assumption. Um, yep, a fair but assumption. I would say that movie has done did the best job recently, besides maybe Alan Silvestri's score for the Avengers, which gives them a nice rousing theme. I think that movie has does the best job of giving each central character their own theme, especially that badass electronic riff for Wonder Woman. Um, I will I will throw that out there as a good one, but that's a lot of Hans Zimmer just doing awesome things. Yeah, it's, he's a, it's a it's powerhouse a, in his own right. It's a collaboration between Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL, who actually did the Mad Max Fury Road. Um, score that jake was talking about but yeah oh, i would cool. agree I, didn't know that. I would agree overall about uh superhero movies lacking some theme however i think that kind of fits in the style of how those movies are made now they're trying to be like realistic and gritty and those scores were always been bombastic i think about john williams superman score where it just makes you believe that the man could fly and it talks about it's like all about the wonder and beauty of superman and i think it speaks to Zack snyder's man of steel uh, with a Hans Zimmer score, which is also kind of bombastic. I really like that score as well, but it's a different style. Um, and I think it's it's about how the movies have changed. Like, Danny Elfman's Batman score would not work for The Dark Knight. You know what I mean? Right. It's a, yeah, definitely. But The Dark Knight score is... I was going to say, when you said the last five years, Nate, I could give you that. Because post-Dark Knight, I would agree there's not... You know, like, Avengers has a good one, but mo- a lot of I would agree with you, a lot of superhero movies of the last five years haven't been great, but there are some exceptions. Like, even even 1989's Batman, classic. Um, Dark Knight's uh, main theme is awesome. Obviously, Andrew just mentioned Superman. I was talking about original Spider-Man. Um, but of the last four or five years, I would agree with you. It's a little... becomes a little more generic and a little less memorable. Yeah, I... Especially the Avengers soundtrack that you guys have both brought up now. Like, don't get me wrong, it's a nice theme, 
But my biggest complaint with Marvel is that they don't use the theme enough. It shows up maybe once or twice in both of the Avengers movies and nowhere else. Part of the reason that John Williams' scores are so memorable is that they're used not only throughout the movie, but even in the promotional things. The trailers use that music to really um, ingrain it into your subconscious as related to the movie. And whenever you hear those notes, you start to think of the movie. You don't get that with the Avengers stuff. None of the Marvel stuff really uses the score in the trailers or in a repeated manner or a loud manner throughout the movie, at least my opinion. And I think this, just to broaden the topic back up a little bit, it's kind of touch and go with every genre as far as memorable scoring goes. I mean, yes, the superhero movie has had their share of problems with memorable scores recently, but this is a problem that also really plagues the action genre too. Like, how many generic movies come out with generic scores? And Jake's absolutely right when he talks about how bombastic and amazing the Mad Max Fury Road score is because it really makes you perk up, and it really makes you... It gives you this adrenaline that other movies in the same genre can't do, just like that movie as a whole does. For example, um, one that I'm thinking of, it's more on the thrillery side, but Johan Johansson's work, uh, especially for Sicario, um, that that kind of work... It's a very tense and it's a very memorable score. It kind of just becomes ingrained with your mind and becomes one with the movie, whereas it feels like a lot of the other movies in the action genre just have this filler music that kind of, okay, it's it's getting us to the point where we need to and it's getting us to the end, but it's not leaving any kind of impression. So I think this yeah. is a th- problem throughout every genre, not just the superhero one. Although it's, it, it's funny you bring up uh, Sicario because... Um, and I'm not like going to argue with with you on any of it, but you were talking. Your main point was to talk about how movies fill silence, and I actually think people often forget. Scores are obviously music, but a big part of that is knowing when to and when not to put it. So, as far as silence goes, silence can be a great key aspect of movies, and I think Sicario uses silence really well because silence can build tension unbelievably well when done right. And I think Sicario is a great example of that. You know, coincidentally speaking, and and. Another one of his scores, too, uh, the one last year for Arrival. Uh, anytime he links up with Dennis Villeneuve, really, he does an amazing job. Um, Arrival's not per se a thriller, but it sure feels like it in certain moments yeah. when they're first making contact with these aliens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's cool because kind of Arrival and another recent sci fi movie in Interstellar are both pretty competent movies that use their musical scores to enhance their piece and arrivals definitely more of the dark foreboding kind of light music and then interstellar probably is a c movie that's brought up to b or a status just by the music alone because uh christopher nolan and hans zimmer use the music um often over the audio of people talking to really enhance the scene. Okay, con- like the docking scene. Controversial especially. opinion with that Interstellar um, <laughs> score. I'm actually not a big oh. fan of that score. Oh, um, I love that score. It's one of the few scores that I have on my iPod. <laughs> that and Inception. I just I was going to say actually, in the Inception has a great score too, and I do like Interstellar. I just I wonder if maybe the the sound mixing isn't great because sometimes it's too overpowering. But I wonder if that's, that's exactly what I was. I wonder say, if Jay. that's an, an editing problem more than it is a, a composing problem. But that's also, an interesting, interesting point, because I have the exact same problem with Dunkirk, 
I can't hear anything that's going on in Dunkirk because the sound is too loud. The so music maybe that's a Nolan thing. Is, nothing, nothing's going exactly. on in Dunkirk. <laughs> that's the Interstellar. There's like important dialogue happening, and I just hear this guy slamming down on a piano. Um, <laughs> it's just I'm just not. I love Hans Zimmer's work. I will go to bat for him any chance that I can. Um, but I, I, the Interstellar one is one I usually I put in my pocket. Um, some other scores, just I want to mention before we we get through this. I would feel, be remiss without mentioning John Powell's work on How to Train Your Dragon. I was I was oh going to say, you, there's no way Andrew doesn't bring up animated scores because, one, he's an animated guy, but two, there are too many good animated scores to not talk about. And they are really great. There are some really, really fun ones. Not even just the musicals um, that Disney's been turning out, but How You Train Your right. Dragon is a really good example. Kubo of and the something. Two Strings last year, Dario Marinelli's score for that was excellent In- as Inside well. Out. If we're even just going out of sight of Disney Pixar DreamWorks. Inside Out has a nice um, one. Yeah, that... Inside say? Out has a nice score as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. My Giacchino again. He's probably the best working today. Um, anyway, Nate, any final thoughts on the topic? Because we got to move on eventually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do. We can talk about music for hours, definitely. For but real, yeah. I just, I just hope that Hollywood doesn't lose track of how important original scores are in their work, because it really makes makes a film go from. Uh, solid movie to a great movie to like a lifelong classic movie is a good score that enhances the feature for a visual medium music is also key so that'll do it for (laughs) lobby talk and we're going to move on to our news segment and this just in a news break special report i've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story Okay, our first story today. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese, they've been kind of attached at the hip for a while. Um, Scorsese has kind of replaced Robert De Niro with DiCaprio as kind of his muse, his favorite actor to work with. But the two haven't actually worked together since 2013. And, of course, that was a big one in The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, But it sounds like they're going to be hooking up again, and it's going to be for a Teddy Roosevelt uh, biopic. The two of them are going to work on a biopic about Roosevelt, who was our 26th president. It doesn't matter. He was a president. No, just yeah, a president. 26th. Yes. <laughs> um, U.S. history system. <laughs> um, you guys failed. I, clearly. Um, he was an important, obviously, maybe not even the most important Roosevelt, but, you know, he was a he was a big president. Um, this is me faking it. Yeah, I was, like was going to say, does. you're just taking shots at former presidents here. <laughs> <laughs> His face is in the side of a mountain. For, oh, he's up there. <laughs> overrated. Overrated. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about Teddy Roosevelt I'll say right that. now. Um, Nate, what do you think of DiCaprio Scorsese linking up for a Roosevelt biopic? Now, is DiCaprio going to play Teddy? Yes. Is that confirmed? Yes, I believe that's the case. That's very interesting, because for me, um, Rose, uh, Teddy Roosevelt is like the the pinnacle of the the badass Republican president. And DiCaprio is notoriously liberal. liberal. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, very much an environmentalist, uh, has been doing a lot in regards to um, advertising that, not advertising that, um, drawing attention to that in the public. And Teddy Roosevelt was like this big game hunter kind of person. And um, still, it, it'll be an interesting project. And Scorsese and DiCaprio are a must-have combination. They they do great work all the time. Um, I'm intrigued, but I'm very curious to see how critical or not critical 
the biopic is of the president. Jake, what um, do you think? I was going to say, as, as you know, DiCaprio and Scorsese are two of the best in the industry right now, but for, as far as Scorsese goes, I guess it would kind of depend on his his take or what, you know, what part of his history they decide to focus on, if any. Um, and, as, you know, obviously DiCaprio is one of the best actors working today, arguably ever, but I don't know if I see him as Teddy Roosevelt. I'm sure he can he can do pretty much anything, but I don't. I'm having trouble seeing it, honestly. I I mean, physically, I can't really see it. Uh, looking at pictures, but I mean that that can be fixed with any amounts of makeup. Um, DiCaprio and Scorsese, kind of like Jake and Nate, both kind of echoed. They've earned my trust to the point where I'll you know I'll watch anything that they do. I think it's an interesting choice for a next project for sure, especially coming off the the firepower and the crackling energy of Wolf of Wall Street to kind of just settle into a biopic is a little odd. I yeah. think it de- it depends what this biopic is going to cover, um, how many years it's going to cover. I think it's going to cover a long span of his life, or if it's going to be like Lincoln, where it focuses on a specific area of his presidency. We'll see. I mean, the two of them really do work well together. They seem to be on the same level for a lot of projects. They seem to have developed this nice friendship as well, and that's really important in any kind of collaboration, just like Johnny Depp, Tim Burton, or even Scorsese and De Niro before them. Yeah. Any any word on a release date or production schedule, anything like that, or just an announcement right now? Just an announcement. I, I you know, slightly different topic before we move on. Um, apparently, they were both attached to a movie called The Devil in the White City, where DiCaprio was going to play H. H. Holmes, a serial killer who you know, murdered, like, multiple women. Any news on, on that at all? Because that one sounds a lot more intriguing than a, a present uh, biopic, at least to me. They they have a couple... This story that I have from uh, Rotten Tomatoes has a couple of potential projects that they've been linked to listed. Uh, Devil in the White City is one of them. There's also an adaptation of a crime book, Killers of, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is a kind of a similar project. And, of course... Um, as we talked about on our practice show that nobody heard, so this means nothing to the <laughs> audience. Uh, the the Joker prequel that they're working on and they're fast-tracking to get into production, uh, he, his name was attached to that, and Scorsese is attached to executive produce yeah, that one. Yeah, but fuck that movie. So, <laughs> topic for another day. But anyway, <laughs> they have been attached to multiple projects, and Jake, you kind of highlight a very interesting point, is this seems like the safest one to go with. Um, but J- Nate, you know more about Teddy Roosevelt. Am I am I way off here by thinking that this may not be the perfect fit? Uh, I don't know if. Hmm. <laughs> it, it is it a all loaded question? On, it <laughs> all depends on what they cover. If if this is a if this is a long term like the entire life of Teddy Roosevelt, there is so much they could do with it. Because uh, you got the, the Spanish-American War, you got all the National Park stuff. Um, it, it'll be interesting. It'll be very, very interesting. I'm I'm not sure. I'm really, really not sure. Um, in terms of the other projects, maybe they're, they're not as intensive. <laughs> like, because you can, you have a little bit more freedom to move around. But I don't really think one is safer than the other. Okay, um, so I think we've probably exhausted that topic as much as we yeah, can. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> we have a very lack of information there. It's just an interesting point to bring yeah. up uh, that these two are going to be working together again. Speaking of 
well, okay, this transition doesn't work. I was going to say, speaking of men in suits, um, <laughs> the Men in Black series. <laughs> that was terrible. That was hands down the worst transition I've ever heard. That was really bad. I was kind of like midway through it, and I was like, shit, this is not going to work. Anyway, the Men in Black series. Um, they debuted in the mid-1990s with Will Smith, Tommy Lee Jones. It was a big box office success. Two sequels, not as much. A lot of time in between them. Uh, Men in Black 2 especially is disregarded by a lot of fans of the series. Men in Black 3 was a little bit better, but it still felt like a franchise that was dead until Sony kind of talked about their idea to cross them over with the 21 and 22 Jump Street series. Um, there was a spinoff that's been in the works for about three or four years. We've been hearing about it for a while. The director, James Bobbin, he was attached to it for a while. He was in charge of those two Muppet movies um, that came out, and then Alice Through the Looking Glass, the sequel to Alice in Wonderland, taking over for Tim Burton in that one. So that was a spinoff they had planned there uh, with the 21 and 22 Jump Street characters. But now we're hearing this week they have another spinoff planned just as a reboot of, I guess I shouldn't say a spinoff, a reboot of the Men in Black franchise. Um, and they actually have a release date for it. It's going to be coming out on May 17th, 2019. Currently that pits it against John Wick Chapter 3 in the summer of 2019. Uh, it would have been a week before Star Wars Episode Eight came out, but that movie has moved. Uh, it's now a week before the Aladdin film, the live-action adaptation. No director attached, no stars attached. We're not expecting Will Smith to return. Uh, the film will be written by screenwriters Matt Holloway and Art Markham, who have a back-and-forth um, filmography, to say the least. They wrote Iron Man, but they also wrote Transformers The Last mm. Night. So, guys, how big of a Men in Black fan are you? Are you excited for a reboot without Will Smith or Tommy Lee Jones ostensibly? And what do you think of that existing as well as a spinoff? Um, I've personally only seen the first Men in Black, and then I've seen parts of 2 and 3. Never, I've never seen 2 or 3 all the way through. Um, I think the Men in Black characters are cool and interesting enough where they can be recast with new people giving new life to the roles. It's just a matter of, again, it's, another, it's just really another franchise that we need rebooted and is it going to be any good is there going to be any kind of take on the story that people really want to see that's going to be worthwhile i'm rooting for john work three personally <laughs> well you're a fanboy for john i, I like the first uh, one i love the second one so nate what do you think well i i've seen all three men in blacks uh the first one's the first one's um like a b-movie classic in its own right it's just a lot of fun um second one not worth anybody's time the third one i'm kind of in the same ballpark i wasn't a huge fan um i i'm very very skeptical about this one when we originally heard about the 21 jump street crossover i had a little bit of hope because the reason that the first one worked is that you had will smith's funny guy character with the straight guy men in black characters that were all like super serious and just seeing those two bounce off of each other was a lot of fun um same reason that kingsman worked when we talked about it last week um just having a spin-off might not work as well because you still need to have that action comedy duo to have a successful men in black movie and just a spin-off in itself seeing the Men in Black meeting Men in Black, I don't think is nearly as appealing unless they have another Will Smith-type character. But at that point, are you just remaking the first Men in Black? That's not fun for anybody. 
So I, I'm definitely down on it. I would much rather see a weird 21 Jump Street action comedy mix-up rather than a f- full spin-off reboot, whatever this is. It's really hard to capture lightning in a bottle twice. And Nate, you're absolutely right. When the big success of the original Men in Black was the chemistry between Tommy Lee Jones, kind of his stoic old man gruffled routine, and Will Smith's energetic, young, uh, ambitious cop routine. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a dynamic that has been repeated in a lot of movies, um, and it surely can be replicated again, but I don't see how this can feel like anything but a cheap knockoff, to be completely honest. Um, it's been, it is a franchise that's been exhausted. It's gone through three movies now. It's about to get that spinoff, if that's still in development. Um, and had a TV series that was really popular, an animated series, for a while. It's a property that was pretty huge in the late 1990s, early 2000s, that really feels like its time is over. And it feels like this is a very desperate attempt. Again, like Jake said, Hollywood rebooting a franchise that I don't think a lot of people are going to want to go see a fourth adventure, especially without the thing that made it special in the first place. Like, it kind of fa- it's, it's unfathomable that they would think about making another one of these without Will Smith in some capacity. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not something that will set you up for any success, and people are not going to go see it unless it looks amazing, which I think the odds are against it that it's not going to look amazing. Yeah. The only- <laughs> Again, we'll wait till we see a trailer, but I'm not I'm not excited as of this Yeah, news. I think the only way I would have been interested is if that, that 22 Jump Street crossover with them would happen, because that's, that's a, a bare minimum a fascinating concept. So without that, I don't know if there's much hope for it at all. And that gives the freedom for, like, Phil Lord and Chris Miller to talk about, uh, you know, how they satirize sequels in 22 Jump Street. They could satirize how these, these yep. crossovers of universes and stuff yeah. like that, these shared they'd be universes. A, they'd be a great – That would be really be fun great, to see. Uh, choice for that, that kind of project for sure. But a spinoff on its own, I think it's safe to say none of us are interested. No. Speaking of something that we are interested in, there's a segue. That's a good one. Getting there. Uh, <laughs> a plus, Drew. <laughs> for this week's edition of Trailer Talk, uh, we're going to be talking about the new trailer from the new film from Alex Garland, who wrote and directed Ex Machina, based on the book Annihilation. Can you describe its form? No. You really have no idea what it was. Why did my husband volunteer for a suicide mission? I could save him. So Garland kind of made his name as a writer throughout Hollywood. Um, He wrote some sci-fi and some dramas uh, throughout his career. He wrote 28 Days Later, he wrote Sunshine, he wrote 28 Weeks Later, and he wrote Dread. And then, of course, he got his big opportunity... Ex Machina was a huge critical success. It got a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. It won the Oscar for Best Visual Effects. Which is a steal. Uh, it was nominated for a couple of other things. Um, but this is Annihilation. It stars Natalie Portman. It stars Oscar Isaac. We're teaming with him. Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, Jennifer Jason Leigh. Um, and it's a really cryptic teaser. Jake Hensler, what did you think of the teaser for Annihilation? Um, well, I think, I think it's kind of exactly what you just said. The trailer doesn't give us a whole lot. It's pretty mysterious. Um, but it at least it, it at least is interesting, and for me, the main hook is Alex Garland, you know, writer and director of Ex Machina, which, you know, backtracking, you want to talk about a good score, that is a pretty good score. But anyway, um, I loved Ex Machina. For me, that's like, it's like an 8.5 out of 10. I think it's a pretty great movie. Um, I think it does a lot right. 
and you know seeing him back in another kind of sci-fi uh sci-fi concept sci-fi movie i'm pretty excited i'm gonna go see it it's got great actors attached it's got you know alex garland was you know had such success with ex machina and i'm i'm pretty excited for those who don't know the premise as far as imdb goes it basically says something along the lines of uh you know this kind of like world where like the laws of nature don't apply and like this mission to go save uh natalie portman's husband and that's basically all we gather out of the trailer but you know that's all i need i'm pretty excited nate what'd you think of the teaser uh it had me hooked by the visuals alone i thought the the otherworldly imagery that we see in the trailers are really really cool there's trees on like a ghost fire there's almost like weird art out of what looks like people's remains or where there used to be people now there's flowers it's just very otherworldly and um really really interesting um i love natalie portman um not only as an actress but just as a natalie portman (laughs) um but (laughs) um but i i really really do like um the the stars in this movie and i'm very much looking forward to it. I think it's got a lot going for it. Uh, and if the trailer holds up and the movie follows suit, we got a really cool sci-fi on our hands. I think less is more is the thing that really works well for me with this trailer. Um, we see so many trailers that just blow the entire story of the film, shows all the money shots. Here, they just give you enough to get you intrigued, give you this kind of sense of dread and this kind of uh, tension and this skin-crawling fear that comes from just a minute and 40 seconds and it does show some nice visuals but i jake gave me that description but it was it was vague you know i don't really know what the yeah that's all i know too (laughs) yeah and that's all they have to do honestly that's all they have to sell just put garland's name on there show these stars in action and show some beautiful visuals um i love like the you guys were talking about some of the other visuals i really loved how um the kind of technicolor bubbly kind of look of some of the imagery, of whatever that thing I is, I thought that was really unique. Yeah, I have, and we have no idea what it is. And I love that the movie doesn't even try to spell it out for you in this minute and forty seconds. So, yeah, consider me hooked as well. Yeah, it's very Lovecraftian horror. Uh, a lot of stuff that is supposed to be incomprehensible to humans is what this trailer looked like. And one of the things that really worked well with Ex Machina is how intellectual it is as well. Um, it's not the most original movie you've ever seen it deals with some semblance of ai technology like we've seen in a bunch of other science fiction movies and kind of the debate over the ethics of that however it has really a brain on it and the execution is fantastic in telling its story and showcasing its visuals and its performances by alicia vikander and damal gleason and oscar isaac who seems to be back here um here's hoping that annihilation kind of does the same thing i'm not fearing the unknown on this one drew loving it all right um, so that'll do it for this edition of Trailer Talk. By the way, Annihilation will be released on February 23rd, if you're looking forward to it. That'll do it for Trailer Talk, and we are going to move on to our feature review of American Made. Haven't you ever wanted something more, Barry? You should be serving your country. You're CIA. <sighs> Shh. Is this how legal? You trust me? Guns, drugs, money laundering. I was working for the CIA, the DEA, and Pablo Escobar. Some of this shit really happened.
That was the trailer for American Made, the new film by Doug Lyman, who is best known for films like Swingers, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, um, Jumper. What was the other one? I had the other one in my head. Born Identity. That's the other one. And, of course, recently with Tom Cruise reuniting here in American Made from 2014's Edge of Tomorrow. Cruise plays Barry Seal. He's a commercial pilot who starts working as a surveillance pilot for the CIA and eventually gets mixed up in a bunch of business. He attracts the attention of the Medellin cartel. He starts running cocaine to the U.S. Then he's tasked with um, helping these freedom fighters in Nicaragua. Ultimately, he gets rich, and it's your typical kind of rise and fall story. The film stars Damal Gleason, Hollywood's favorite ginger right now, Sarah Wright, Caleb Landry-Jones, and Jesse Plemons. So... Tom Cruise and Doug Liman reuniting after Edge of Tomorrow, which was a very pleasant surprise back in 2014. Nate Lungarini, what did you think of American Made? Well, let me just say that even this movie aside, this is probably one of the most interesting stories I have ever heard about. The, the real story of this man is a fascinating one. It's amazing how he had so many different... Um, alliances, essentially, with so many radically different kinds of people. It's nuts. And him literally Forrest Gumping his way through life with not a care in the world (laughs) is a ridiculous thing. Now, uh, this movie kind of goes for a pseudo-mockumentary style, uh, where you don't have a whole lot of the uh, direct-to-camera asides you would expect from this type of movie. Uh, stuff like Wolf of Wall Street, you had Leonardo DiCaprio's character explain what he's doing and why he's doing it to the audience. Uh, this movie d- tends not to do that. I think there were maybe two or three times where Tom Cruise kind of narrates what's going on. Um, but it definitely keeps it to a minimum to keep the documentary style intact. And unfortunately, I think that's where this movie kind of lost me, because we don't really know why Barry Seal, Tom Cruise's character, is doing the things he does until maybe the third act of the movie. So the stuff that this movie does well, I really, really liked, but the emotional investment wasn't quite there until a little bit too late into the movie, in my opinion. Jake, what'd you think? You just saw the movie recently. Um... Sorry, my mic was just freaking out for a second. Um, I just got out of the theater about a couple hours ago, um, but I thought it was it was pretty good. It was definitely interesting. I would love to do a little research and find out if it's all true, like every detail of the story. Um, I can guarantee you it's not. But <laughs> okay, because I was gonna say that's a one. It's a pretty wild story if everything that happened is really true, and pretty unbelievable that not, like I've we've never heard of it. Um, but generally I feel like, I feel like it, it's pretty interesting. You know, the beginning of his life is pretty interesting and how he gets involved and everything is pretty interesting. I think it becomes a little over the top once he gets in deep. Um, I would also say, um, the pacing gets a little on and off, you know, sometimes it's very interesting and sometimes it, it, you know, falls off a little bit, but Generally, it's a pretty entertaining movie start to finish. Tom Cruise is good at these hyper-upbeat characters. Um, him and Doug Liman seem to do pretty well together as a collaboration. Um, but it was it was nothing amazing. you know. I mean, typically August and September are low months for uh, film. And I would say this September is definitely proving that different, considering this was pretty good and it was great. Um, 
But overall, it was just, it was a pretty good movie. Nothing amazing. Hmm. I, I have to contradict both of you at, of, on certain points. Um, generally, I agree with you, I would say, on the most part. I think we are all on the same page in a general sense. But, Nate, you were talking about um, the emotional investment side of things. And I think it's all of a matter of intention. Um, this is a movie that's aiming more to entertain and be this, like, wild, rocking ride, kind of like Wolf of Wall Street was. There's there's a dozens and dozens of these kind of movies out there. Some of them are really good. Some of them are really bad. Just to name a few of the rise and fall kind of variety in these crazy stories. Wolf of Wall Street, uh, War Dogs from last year, American Hustle, Pain and Gain, The Big Short, Wall Street, Boogie Nights, Scarface, and of course, Goodfellas is probably the epitome and the quintessential rise and fall story, especially in recent years. Um, and I think Doug Lyman really knows how to entertain. The movie really moves breezily through. I agree with Jake about the pacing. It spans a lot of years, and there's a bunch of potentially confusing info about what he was doing and what parts and who knew about what he was doing um, and where was the legal and illegal line. And I think using Cruz as kind of the fourth wall breaker was really important. Um, Jake, you were saying that you weren't liking it, um, or not liking it, but thought it got a little ridiculous in the second two-thirds, and looking at the film as pure entertainment value as I looked at it, uh, not as so much a drama per se, or like a Oscar kind of movie or anything, and I'm not saying that's what you guys were looking at as, but as far as emotional investment goes, I was, I was never emotionally invested, and I wasn't really looking to be emotionally invested, because this guy is kind of a scumbag at points. <laughs> um, and we can get more into that into the review, but the final two thirds are really, really where this movie hit its stride for me. And I found it really entertaining. I was laughing. I was really engaged with some of these set pieces that we'll talk about more in our spoiler talk. But overall, I found myself having a hell of a time during American Made, and I would really recommend it for a lot of people. It's definitely in like my top twenty five, top twenty of the year. Wow, I'm I'm actually surprised you were that um you were that up about it. Like I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. I just thought there were times, I guess, after the midpoint when he really gets into the thick of everything, that I was just like, "Wow, really? That that much, huh?" Like it was definitely entertaining, but just slightly, just a slight stretch for me where I was like, mm, "It's a little." Some of it gets a little wacky. Not all of it. But some of it was definitely fitting, but some of it is like, and. And I think right in right in the middle when he really – when he's approaching the thick, there are times when his wife definitely asks what the hell's going on. But there are some times when I'm like, there are not enough people asking questions. <laughs> but the thing is, it, it's a matter of what you were looking for specifically. It's – if you don't – I mean I understand you wanting realism and I, I get that. But as far – for me personally, the movie never even really tried to engage with realism. It was all about – him telling you this crazy, crazy story that, you know, you, you're you sitting by a campfire one day and old t- t- Uncle Tom Cruise comes and he puts you on his lap and he tells you the crazy story of Barry Seal and just it gets outrageous and outrageous. And I really love those outrageous moments because it felt like this kind of embellishment of this crazy story made even crazier. Um, I, I don't know, Drew. I disagree with you there. I, I think the movie tried for – a semblance of realism with the very first three words of the movie, and that's based on a true story. Four words. Four words. Excuse me. Based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to disagree Nate. with you, Drew. <laughs> I, and that's what I agree with you, Nate. When you throw based on a true story out there, I'm a, 
I'm expecting realism. Now, if it turns oh, out that's a load, that's a load. That's now, a load, man. No, now and sometimes yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not. It depends if I can go with it or not. But when yeah, I'm, there's, don't get me wrong. I this this story is ridiculous, and I, I said that in my opening remarks. It's ridiculous, and it's really cool to see the ridiculousness. And play it's entertaining out. for sure, but um, but it's there's a very fine line between me watching a ridiculous movie and having to turn my brain off to enjoy the movie. And it seems like you were okay doing that for this one, Drew. I was. Um, and I let's let's address this based on a true story thing because so many movies use this and a lot of movies get away with embellishing. Um, so why is this the one where I'm expected to take it completely seriously and not just turn my brain off a little bit? What about this one gave you guys the feeling, because you guys clearly wanted some kind of emotional investment and realism, and I kind of took it as this kind of wacky roller coaster ride that I was supposed to go with. And that's just, that's fine. We both had our expectations going into it and our expectations coming out. But what about this made you want the emotional investment? Because Tom Cruise is not doing anything here but playing a Tom Cruise type. He's excellent, he's charming, but he's channeling like a Jordan Belfort character. I think the first the act feels pretty real and I can see how he gets himself into these these situations and this mess because you can kind of see in the character from the first opening scene that he likes a little adventure he likes a little fun so I can see where he gets into all the trouble but I think once the trouble hits its 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 peak I'm like oh, hold on a second this is this is way out of hand not way out of hand but a little little out of hand so I think it starts very real in the first act, and maybe that's why I was a little thrown off by the end. I wasn't even necessarily thrown off by the descent away from realism. That That's not what really bothers me. What bothers me um, was the emotional investment side of things, because I didn't care about the character until the third act. That's where this movie lost me. I, I don't really care if it adhered to the facts so much, but... I wasn't connecting to Barry Seal's character because he's a scumbag. Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to, though. And we're not supposed to. Um, But any of the other grounded characters in this movie don't have the screen time to get me connected to them, too, either. Like, uh, Sarah Wright as the wife character is not in it nearly enough. Um, Same with Gleason um, as the CIA agent. There isn't a whole lot of a supporting cast that has any meaningful impact on the story. This movie rides on Tom Cruise, and if you connect with him, or if you are fine just uh, watching him see how things play out, that's great. But honestly, if you aren't on board in the first act, then you're going to be bored until the third. Oh, I, I, I would disagree with that. I will say something that I do agree with that you just said. Um, this supporting cast is a solid supporting cast, but they don't get a lot to do. You're absolutely right about that. Um, especially Caleb Landry-Jones, who is who was fantastic earlier this year and so creepy in Get Out as the brother character. He's kind of just a generic redneck here. Jesse Plemons oh, that's as the I sheriff in the town. Yeah, and he's also from X Men First Class. He's Banshee in that. Right. Oh, I knew right. I've seen him before. I couldn't. I couldn't yeah. figure out where. He's that guy that's been. He's been popping up a lot the last five or six years. He just kind of disappears into the background. Um, but he he just kind of playing a generic redneck here. Jesse Plemons' character, forget it. He was so good in Breaking Bad, 
and I'm still waiting for him to get a role of the caliber of the character Todd that he plays in that um, show. And Domo Gleason, I feel like he was a little bit miscast in this role. Um, it felt like it needed someone, not someone of a little more sleazy. Yeah, a little more sleazy. I someone agree of the with caliber that. of like, word. think of like Giovanni Ribisi, or think of like even young Tommy Lee Jones. Someone either sleazy or someone with a lot of swagger. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And he doesn't really capture either of those. Although, well, it's hard for me to compare because I've only really seen him in, um, in Star- Ex Machina, Star, Star Wars. Wars. You've definitely seen him in Force Awakens. Okay. <laughs> I was but like, he doesn't I know do you've a whole lot that. there. He talks he, like this throughout all of Force Awakens, kind of like yeah. John Malkovich. <laughs> yeah, like I, I haven't really seen enough of his range, but I agree, he didn't really sell the the sleaziness for me. I think that's a really good word. What I what I will say that's interesting about this movie is that we kind of all agree, but we kind of all disagree. Like for me, I connected with Tom Cruise in the sense of, you know, adventures that could get you in trouble. Like, I, I'm not talking about adventures that put me in prison for life, but adventures that you know you can get in trouble for, <laughs> they're, you know, they get your adrenaline pumping. And I think those are, I think those are some really fun stuff. Adrenaline, adrenaline in general, I think is a fun experience. Roller coasters. I've gone skydiving. I like that kind of stuff. So I understood where he was coming from. But for me, I didn't totally be, I didn't need to be totally on board and connecting with him. I was just watching this outlandish man on this crazy experience. And when it just slightly went off the deep end is where I kind of, kind of went, eh. And don't I? I didn't dislike it. I actually liked it a little more than I thought I was going to. There were just a little bit where they were towing the the line of realism for me. Okay, I'm gonna be really interesting to know where exactly that fall off point was for you when we get into our spoiler talk. Okay, because <laughs> that's that's gonna be a very interesting point I think to see where exactly was too much for you because I I thought the movie did a nice job escalating. Uh, it's madness. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It didn't just, it wasn't like steadily building and then just completely drop. No, like, I agree. There, the there was, was no set. Yeah, it was a nice crescendo. Yeah, there was nice no set drop off. I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a cynical message here. It's it's the same kind of message as in Goodfellas and the Wolf of Wall Street. It's about how the American dream and ways, crazy ways that people go to achieve it. Um, it's a little glossed over here. Um, I, you guys are talking about the first third. I had, I had problems with the first third. Just kind of it throws you into it immediately. Um, if if there was ever going to be any kind of emotional investment in Tom Cruise's character, we would get it there. All we really see him, he's bored with his life. Okay, I understand that. He uh, his, his wife wants to come home and make love to him. He's not awake because he just has this exhausting but still kind of tedious life. So it throws you in with a mixture of that and style, and it takes it a little bit while to get into the groove. But when it really hits its stride, this movie takes off like an airplane, I think. And I really found myself just going along for it, cruising along for the last two-thirds or so. And I guess that's just a matter of what we were looking for. Um, so I think <laughs> well, this is a good time to transition into our ratings. Uh, Nate, I'm going to have you recap what the ratings are very briefly, just what they are. And for, for those who didn't tune in the first or second episode, I think it's a good idea to go over ratings again. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yep. So really, really quick. Uh, a perfect movie for us is A Royal Throne. Uh, a great film is A Plush Recliner. A average film is A Wooden Seat. A poor film is A Damp Lawn Chair. And a horrible, bad, 
wrong film is a sleazy outhouse. And that's all on the middle seats seat scale. So why don't you start us off, Nady? Alrighty. So um I'm gonna go with a wooden seat for American Made. Uh there are definitely times where this movie pushes into plush recliner territory in certain scenes. But there are also other certain scenes that feel more like a damp lawn chair. So this was very much a roller coaster of a movie, quite literally, where there were highs and lows of where I was into the movie, where I was not into the movie. Um, so I'm just going to stick it right in the middle as a wooden seat. Jake, what would you um, give American Made? We were talking, talking about this last show. There's going to be um, anything that's not great is going to be a wooden seat. And that's where I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with wooden seat. But I'm going to I'm going to you know, teeter on the scale a little bit and say it's a nice polished wooden seat, almost like a dining room chair where like, like it's still an enjoyable seat. It's just not one of your favorite seats, but it's still nice. It's comfy. It's, it's fine to sit in for a while. It's just not a, it's just not like the, the best one. So a nice polished wooden seat that you wouldn't mind, you know, sitting in for a while. Okay. I don't dispute you guys that when you say that there, there is not really any emotional attachment or depth here. Where I do dispute you guys on American Made is intention, and I don't think American Made ever intended to have any kind of any kind of emotional attachment whatsoever. I think it's just meant to be this kind of fun um, ride that you go to the theater and you just enjoy for two hours, and you just kind of take in this crazy story. Tom Cruise gives one of his best performances, I think, as Barry Seal. He's just so charismatic. This movie does not work without him. Um, and I think if you give it going into the mindset that you're just there to see this crazy story with these crazy crescendos, then, yeah, you're going to have a good time. Um, again, like like Jake said, there's there's a lot of kind of leeway in between the two points, but I'm going to go with a... I'll go with plush recliner, but I'm going to go with a... like a tattered, kind kind of moist, kind of gross, but still maybe comfortable it's got, like, to got sit a few, in. Maybe still it's got very a, comfortable a few rips. Maybe like one of the seats is kind of like... Like, one of the corners of the cushion is falling into the actual chair. So it's not the best plush recliner. <laughs> Just a worn-in rush recliner, then. You, it's, you don't it's, sit in a wet chair unless it's a bad movie. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Get out of here. But, yeah, okay, I'll, go ahead. So, yeah, it's on the lower side of plush recliner, but I do think people will enjoy this. Um, We have our bag of popcorn identifier, which is meant for movies that basically we think should be seen on a big screen. I wouldn't give this one. Uh, the bag of popcorn. Personally, I don't know how you guys feel about that. I would say, yeah, I, I don't, th- I don't think this is a bag of popcorn uh, kind of movie. I think this kind of movie you get on on demand or you see on your theater back home when it comes out on DVD, so that way you can talk to your friends watching the movie about how ridiculous it is. Like, did he really just do that? Or, oh my god, is that really happening? Right, or if you're- this feels like that kind yeah, of movie. Yeah, if you're looking for something to, to watch, nothing in particular, and you're scrolling through, scrolling through, and you see American Made, it's probably it's probably a decent choice. Okay. Um, so that'll do it for our general review of American Made. If you have not seen American Made and want to, you're going to want to tune out now. Check out our time codes for our goodbyes at the end of the show. If you have seen American Made or just don't care about spoilers, join us as we jump into our spoiler talk. Whoa! Oh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Excuse me, spoiler alert! So, Jake, 
Um, I want you to tell me where the drop-off point was, if there was one specifically. What was the step too far? I don't know that there was a set. <laughs> I don't know if there was, there wasn't quite a set drop-off. It was just like, like if you're, like if you're walking down the road with a set direction and all of a sudden it gets an incline and you feel like this incline is a bit too much for my legs, you know? That's that's kind of out of weird analogy, but that's kind of where it was. All of a sudden, it just it started to rise and rise and rise to the point where I was like, "Is it rising just a bit too much with conflict and you know crazy storylines?" Um, and I I don't remember exactly where I felt that way. It was just it was definitely after the midpoint, after maybe when it was like when he says something like we had I didn't think an excess of cash would be a problem, something like that. I was like. This is just crazy. Like he's got he's got so much going on. He's basically got five planes flying in and out of his own home. He's got more cash he knows what to do with. It just seemed like a just a tad bit too much. Well, it was overwhelming in the sense of excess, you know what I mean? Um kind of like Wolf of Wall Street, um where you have everything in the world, you have all the money, you have all the cars and everything, but at some point, you know, it starts to become like holy crap, I have all the money and I have all the cars and the beautiful house and everything that I and I want and I think that's part of the point of the story where it's just like wow this guy really had everything but is everything what we really want that's a good point it's it's weird hearing how both of us Jake and I had the same rating but were complete opposites on why we have that rating I was on board with this movie once we hit the ridiculous part at halfway hmm. of the last third of the movie. Um, I was not into it for the first half. And it seems like you're the complete opposite, Jake. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, a little bit. I was like, I, I enjoyed watching him get there and get there and get there. And even when he was, was in the thick of it, fine. But once it just got a little bit overboard, I was like, eh, I don't, it just it just seemed all crazy and then and then um when like and actually no I didn't have a problem with this I thought it was funny when the DEA and the police and the FBI all show up I thought that was funny but I love that right scene around, that was probably my that was probably I thought my that was actually scene. funny that was, that was good a lot of fun. but right around that time I was like there is so much going on and just maybe there wasn't enough questions being asked maybe there wasn't enough Maybe it was just it seemed too easy for him. Maybe I don't know. Some something along those lines. I kind of love that though. I I think that that's one of the part of the message that Lyman's trying to. I said it wasn't. It didn't do a great job with having the cynical message about the American dream. But I kind of love how this guy just backs into success. Like he basically he gets arrested and he ends up in the White House Situation Room. Like how that would happen is just it's unbelievable and it's a little infuriating that a guy gets rewarded for that kind of, you know, that kind of scumbaggery that he kind of engaged in throughout his life. And eventually, of course, it cost him his life. Um, was actually coincidentally, and you're probably going to laugh at me, I actually, I laughed, but I actually kind of went with that when he gets into the White House because there are there are high-stake jobs like that. Like if, you know the, you know the, the hacker group Anonymous? Yeah. Yeah. If they're so good that... Apparently, they're so good that if you get caught, you're going to get hired by the Pentagon because that's how good you are. Though it's illegal, they're so good at what they do, they're they're wanted by the highest agencies. 
So I kind of understood where they went with that storyline as far as getting into the White House goes. I like. I mean, I liked it. I'm, not, I'm definitely not complaining about it. I I just thought it was a um, it was a funny story beat to get in there. Really, from the point on where the the entire government agency until the end was, I think, the high point for the movie for me. Like Nate said, it's a nice crescendo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I definitely enjoyed the the. I guess you could call them the cliche moments where we see the legitimate rise and fall. What just kind of infuriated about this movie was that we didn't get the reasons why he was acting the way he was. And um, I think that just might be me not liking Cruz's character, um, not even really as an actor um, so much. I'm not a huge fan of Tom Cruise. Really? So maybe it's just a personal preference to me. Why not? I don't. I don't know. It's just... I can understand. Um, there's that. only so much scumbaggery that I can take in one sitting, Drew. And <laughs> like, don't get me wrong, he is charismatic, and um, he's probably the, one of the few actors that could pull off this kind of role. Um, but it's just not something I can watch for an extended period of time. Similar stories, like Breaking Bad, where he goes, does something illegal, and makes a lot of money, has the exact same factual beats as this kind of story does but the characterization is so radically different and that's so much more intriguing for me to watch than somebody who's in it just for the kids i don't think that's an apples to oranges comparison though because i mean breaking bad had five oh yeah five and a half seasons absolutely yeah. absolutely um but wolf of wall street is a similar kind of movie and it starts out in a similar way where leonardo dicaprio's character starts out as an honest guy and just slowly gives in to his greed and becomes this ridiculous characterization. Um, this movie, he doesn't really have any character growth. I think one of the turning points in the movie, plot-wise, is when BJ's car explodes. Mm-hmm. And it's our first emotional moment for the character. Where that he, was good. Holy crap. My sister, or my wife's uh, brother just died. How am I gonna, how am I gonna deal with the situation? And... He just kind of moseys on to the next scene. There isn't a whole lot of emotional impact for that. We kind of just, he kind of just says, all right, it's taken care of. I can't do anything about it now. Holy crap, that was nuts, but we got to move on. It, and that's as, really it. As far as like, obviously we're in spoiler talk, so it's okay. As, other than the fact that the cartel came after him and, and killed him, there wasn't a whole lot of consequences to be talked about either. He pretty much gets away with everything up until the end. Exactly. And I think that's – but I think that's kind of the point too, isn't it? I would say it is. Yeah, but even – but like as far as Nate, what Nate was talking about, when the when the brother's car explodes, he, they do kind of just talk about how like he'll figure it out and life goes on. Like there was – Yeah, well he's – I don't even think we – I don't even think his wife asked. He's a shitty person. He kind of probably saw it as – I mean it, it, it wasn't great that his brother-in-law was blown up. Yeah, the wife doesn't ask. You're right. That is a point that felt kind of weird. But – I think there's a part of him that's like, okay, this situation's solved for me. See, yeah, but the, I would, I maybe just give a little get bit that more from his to character. It. That's true. We we never have him tell even another person in the story, let alone to the audience. Wow, I feel remorse for what I've done, or I don't feel remorse for what I've done. We don't get either, and that's why his character doesn't do it for me, and that's why this movie did not work for me. 
we don't understand why he does what he does. Whether it's for good reasons or bad reasons, both are equally entertaining to watch, but we get neither as an audience. I think they try to it's set it up It's actually funny, that didn't beginning. bother me. I'm sorry, Jake, go ahead. No, we both, we both cut each other off at the same time. I was going to say it's, it's funny because that, what Nate was talking about, though he's kind of right, that didn't bother me because I, I can understand... I mean, obviously not to his level, but I can understand at least the originality of how he gets into it. People can get blinded by money. They can get blinded by adventure, by adrenaline. And even though this is an extreme circumstance, I kind of got it. So sorry, Andrew, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's what basically what I was going to say. They set up at the beginning how how the doldrums of his life seemed to have get to him, got to him. Granted, they don't send a, they don't spend a lot of time setting it up. Uh, I could have used a little bit more if that was the focus, but again, I don't think that was the focus of the film. Um, I think it's it's to show a little bit of motivation and just run with it from there. And I and I think again, Nate, I think it's just a matter of what we were looking for going into this. All right, that all sounds fair to me, Drew. Um, I just wanted to talk about a couple of other standout scenes. Um, I really liked the sequence where he has to take his first chance at uh taking off from the Medellin cartels area uh, where he has to, that was fun to push watch. the plane Agreed. all the way Good back scene. and somehow get it into the air and not crash into the trees. Um, I, and having to work with the cartel to get the fat guy out of the plane or um, them just not even taking him seriously for half mm-hmm. of it. That's fun to and, watch. And raising the stakes. He's like, I'm already 150, what was it? 150 pounds over with, with cocaine. I think you it was know, 1,500 pounds. That, that's what sure. it was. Add another yeah. zero. He was 1,500 pounds over what he was already supposed to be doing. That just shows how much him and the cartel were willing to to go after it and get their success. And and how he drops all of it off very quickly. He puts it on autopilot. Watching watching that whole execution, I really like that scene too. I think the moment that's cemented for me that we weren't supposed to like him is when he p- makes his family pick up everything, move into this house with not even running water, that's correct. And then just leaves. Um, I was like, wow, wow, fuck this guy. That was the thing. I was like, all right, mm-hmm. if I was in this situation, say I was, say for whatever reason, I was married to Barry Seal. Absolutely no shot I'm getting yeah. up and leaving Through within. some extraneous circumstances. Right. <laughs> if, if I was woken up in that circumstance and saying, we need to leave right now, I'd be like, not until you explain everything am I going to help you and leave my life here. There's just no shot. They give her that little catchphrase like, do you trust me? No. And then she goes along and does everything that he does. Right. I was like, I would be, Mm -hmm. no, I don't because you're acting like a psycho. Now, please tell me what the hell is going on. Yeah, this movie definitely doesn't pass the the Bechdel test um, where two females are supposed to talk to each other and do something. Um, Pretty light on that. There's Jayma Mays as a district attorney. But other than that, uh, the wife character is not given much to do. I agree with you, Nate, on that point. Yeah, the supporting cast does nothing to forward the plot in in most cases. I did enjoy some of his um, compadre. I don't remember a lot of the names, but some of the people that he brings on to his task. It felt like kind of uh, the Jonah Hill character, Light from Wolf of Wall Street, kind of his band of bandits doing the work for him as he expands his operations. Oh, see, I, feel I like did we enjoy didn't get having anything. them. I feel like I didn't even know anything about them at all. I didn't know their names. I didn't. Yeah. I got nothing from them. There was the guy with the snake. That's the only and one. The guy I can with remember. the mustache who stuck with him toward the end of the movie. Yeah, I they knew, were kind. Yeah. I knew nothing. They were. They were. They were shoehorned in. Definitely punchlines. Um, I wouldn't say they were shoehorned in per se. 
I would say that they were more meant for comedic effect. Like I really, I also really liked the scene where he first is kind of corralled by the DEA in the air, but their planes, their planes can go really fast, but they can't really sustain long enough for so they just ride really slow Mm -hmm. so slow that one of his friends falls asleep and almost crashes his plane i thought that was a nice comedic moment that made me laugh quite a bit and i thought Um, it was a a clever way to get out of uh, a tricky uh tricky scenario too i enjoyed that it gives him a little bit of characterization too to show he is an intelligent guy he's he isn't someone that just backed into this as far as being selected it's a matter of i'm gonna start with the final thoughts here i would say uh i'll go first this time just because it segues better I would say that the movie, by design from Lyman and from screenwriter Gary Spinelli, is very much a string of those scenes put together. It's the takeoff scene. It's the all the agencies coming to get him. It's the riding slow to get the DA off his tail. It's a bunch of these really entertaining scenes stitched together in a movie that, you guys are right, it doesn't have a lot of emotional investment. Um, it's a little bit lacking in its execution of these kind of themes about the American dream. Um, it's lacking in actual depth at points, but I also don't think it's trying to portray those depths. I think Tom Cruise does everything he needs to do to carry the film, and there's a lot of entertaining sequences that I would absolutely recommend this to, especially people that are just looking to go in and have a good time. So, mm-hmm. Jake, what are your final thoughts on... I was actually going to say, I feel like I'm... And this is common as far as film criticism goes, I think. It's easy... Even in a decent movie, it's easy to talk about the negatives more. And I feel like I've been a little overly negative just because it's easier to talk about. Because there are positives about this too. There are plenty of scenes that I liked. It was overall, you know, well and entertaining. I enjoyed myself. I'm, 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 you know, it wasn't a waste of money. And I do think Tom Cruise is a little better than average here. Um, I think even though he's pretty, he's fallen into this pattern of upbeat, energetic, charismatic characters. He is good as this upbeat, energetic, charismatic guy. Um, he is. And I did enjoy him. I enjoyed watching him. I did enjoy the story overall. It just, it wasn't great. It was a better than average movie. Um, and if you're if you're looking for something to watch, if you like stuff that's relatively based on true stories, this is a pretty good watch. I just, it's not a, a necessity of the year. Nate, final thoughts? Well, just to hammer it home, this is absolutely a ridiculous more. A ridiculous movie about a ridiculous man. <laughs> and there are some really, really fun scenes. Uh, and it, there's just little lacking on the characterization, not only of Cruz's motives here, but the supporting cast as well that keeps this from being a great movie for me. Um, it's definitely ser- serviceable. It definitely has some really, really funny moments mixed in with the crazy events that go on but that's all it can really offer you it's a fun ride but it's not going to change anything in your life so that will do it for our review of american made we want to hear what you have to say about american made along with a bunch of other things that we want to hear from you about this episode in general nate if they want to contact us how do they get in contact with us sure thing well, definitely subscribe to us on YouTube at The Middle Seats. Uh, definitely like, comment, subscribe. Tell us about what you thought, what you liked, what you didn't like. We'd love to hear from you. You can also get in touch with us at the middle seat show at gmail.com. And that's for any questions, concerns, comments, or if you just want to say hello, drop in to our email and do that. That'll do it for the third episode here of The Middle Seats Podcast. 
Next week, we're expecting to be talking about Dennis Villeneuve's highly anticipated sequel, Blade Runner 2049, starring Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford. That'll do it. For Nate Lungarini and for Jake Hensler, I'm Andrew Ogier. Keep that seat warm, everybody. We'll be back soon.